Hello, you glorious homo sapiens, and welcome back to another episode of Puzzled Monkey. I hope everyone is living their best life as we have officially entered the season of spring. Praise the Lord. Longer and warmer days are now coming. So let's take advantage of them. Jesus, that seagull is seriously taking advantage of them. Can you hear that? Typical. It's buggered off now. These seagulls up here are very different to seagulls I've encountered in other parts of the country. For example, the seagulls down in Bristol were quite, well, Bristolian. They were quite quaint. They were quite quiet. They didn't really, you know, bother you. Whereas up here, remember the first time I came to Liverpool, I went down the Strand, which is where these beautiful, beautiful old buildings, these UNESCO heritage buildings are. And I saw this bloke sprinting down the Strand. He had his, uh, not suitcase, he had his briefcase above his head. And this seagull was mobbing him like the whole way down. It must have been 100 metres. He was like that emu running down the Colden Canal towpath because he was belting it at high speed. I mean, how bloody scouse is that? You can just imagine the voice of this seagull. Where are you from, lad? What's in that briefcase, yeah? Let's have a fucking look now, lad, yeah? (laughs) Anyway, aside from what this seagull would have, you know, hypothetically sounded like, I reckon all I needed to know about the city I was going to move to was embodied within that exchange. Anyway, this podcast episode is not about my love affair with the city of Scousers. It's about invasive species this week, and also about how animals, like humans, enjoy taking psychedelic substances. I got thinking about invasive species this week because I went into the park. I made the foolish mistake of going into Sefton Park on St. Paddy's Day. And I don't know whether it was the case in other cities in the UK or elsewhere for that fact, but the park was absolutely packed with young people and what I can only assume were students. They were going absolutely mental as if the leash had been let off. And no, I'm not saying that students are an invasive species that take over local areas and push out locals through processes such as gentrification. But it was mad to see this great number of people in one space and they were spilling out into the street. And it makes you realise how alien a sight this is. You know, I haven't seen this number of people in one space probably, well, I'm a bit of a recluse of probably the late 90s. And of course, because of all the conditioning we've received from the news and other forms of media over the last 12 months, your inner sensible person is kind of telling you that this is a really irresponsible act. You know, it's like when people go and protest against the COVID restrictions, even though they're actually encouraging the spread of COVID. It's one of those things where you think, well, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot here, lads. But alongside that, I also, you know, felt a bit of sympathy for them. They've likely been locked up inside these student halls, which are, you know, they're gorgeous. The ones in Liverpool are absolutely stunning. But, you know, when you're just stuck there all the time, they're probably just a glorified prison cell. And it was probably the warmest day of the year thus far. That's obviously not saying much. I mean, there was probably about 20 minutes of sunlight. And that's obviously any excuse for some bloke to pull out a wife beater and get the coronas out. And there, I mean, the beers, of course. Anyway, I'm not ashamed to say that actually, I kind of understand where these students are coming from. It was a nice day. They wanted to get outside. They wanted to have some crack. But alas, then they started playing drum and bass remixes of Oasis. And then I thought, you know what? Fuck them. If you've never heard Wonderwall with a pounding D&B backdrop, then get on YouTube now. You'll definitely regret it. Anyway, as I was walking along, I noticed that these students were not the only invasive species dressed in green. 
because maybe as it was such a nice day, the trees in the park were lined with that most famous of invasive species, those green parakeets that seemingly have invaded all of the parks in the UK, or at least all the parks that I've been to. These are the ring-necked parakeets. Now, we kind of need to talk about these birds at the moment, because there's increasing calls for them to be culled. This is because they've done so bloody well in the UK. I mean, when you think of parrots, you think of exotic locations, and this is exactly where they come from. These birds originate, I think, in Western Africa, but also in India as well. So they're used to more, you know, exotic climes. But of course, these areas have cold parts too. So they've actually adapted really well, and they've absolutely flourished. But like every success story, there is also a concurrent loser's story. And those behind the cull argue that parakeets have pushed other species to dangerous degrees of vulnerability and potentially even extinction. I'd say there's probably a little bit of hyperbole going on here, but it is definitely true that invasive species like these parakeets can impact the livelihoods of native species, native birds that have lived on this island for a long period of time. Notice how I kind of stuttered there, because when I said that, it kind of reminds me of the rhetoric that is so central to modern British politics, this idea of the invasive the other coming to the country and making it hard for the livelihoods of the hard-working Brits. I think it's really interesting how our perception of ecology is so clearly influenced by the political moment we live in, as well as obviously the political dynamics that animate it. Ecology and politics are two sides of the same coin, and perhaps we need to recognise that more. You know, they're not separate entities, they're very much symbiotic things, both in terms of perception, but also the fact that what happens in one obviously impacts the other. This call to cull the ring-necked parakeet is by no means the first time that violence has been called for against an invasive species. The cute grey squirrel that you see at your bird feeder is actually the target of perhaps the most sustained anti-invasive species campaign in the UK's history. Now, these little fluffy fellas have been around for so long that you might think that they're actually native, but they were brought to the UK in the late 19th century from North America. And since then, it appears that they have pushed the red squirrel, which is native to the UK, to the margins of the country. There are only an estimated 140,000 red squirrels left in the UK, and those populations are centred on islands such as the Isle of Wight, northern Scotland, parts of Cumbria and Northumberland. And I think actually just up the road from me in Formby. Oh, what the fuck is that? There's a tank rolling in outside. I've moved house, so now I have to contend with all the other noises. What the hell was that? Sound like an alien spaceship coming in. Anyway, squirrels that are red have been pushed to the edge. Moral of the story. And because of this, what could only be really described as vigilante or even paramilitary groups of grey squirrel exterminators have formed across the country. And the most famous just has a wonderful name. Red Squirrels United. It sounds a bit like a quaint football team from rural Wales, but in reality, it's an EU-funded red squirrel conservation scheme that involves eradicating grey squirrels in specific areas to encourage the return, and hopefully the proliferation, of the reds. Too right, lad. Up the fucking reds, yeah? 
Sorry about that. That was just the uh, the seagull from that story somehow found me in my new digs. It's a bit concerning, to be honest. He is genuinely here. Can you hear that? Jesus Christ. Anyway, these anti-grey squirrel paramilitaries, let's call them, are not actually composed of professional marksmen or women. And like any paramilitary organisation worth its salt, these organisations are very grassroots. They're made up of abnormally normal people like you and me, accountants, IT salesmen, so on and so forth. I guess it's a little bit like that scheme in the Punjab we talked about in episode 2, where people could get a firearm license if they took a selfie with a shrub they planted. It's a good thing to get local people involved in conservation issues, whether it be about trees or murdering squirrels. Because this is one of the greatest issues with conservation. It's very exclusionary. Only a certain number of organisations or charities can afford, in terms of money and time, to engage in these exercises. In terms of the everyday person, there's pretty much nothing we feel we can do. And that obviously breeds into this real issue of apathy. This pervasive feeling of powerlessness that we feel in the face of shaping our own ecologies, the ecologies that surround us, the ones that we engage with. You know, do we really feel like we have the capacity to impact them in any way? There's a little rhetorical question, a little morsel for you to suck upon tonight. Okay, the seagulls didn't like that one. What the hell? I literally moved about less than half a kilometre. Maybe they're the landlords. Shit. Anyway, as you can imagine, regardless of how ecologically sound the idea of a parakeet or grey squirrel cult is, there has been a massive pushback to the idea of both. For example, a couple of years ago, more than 95,000 people signed an anti-grey squirrel cull petition in the UK. And many said that they saw it as barbaric, arguing that, you know, we love the squirrels. They're an essential part of the experience of going into a park and that humans shouldn't really have any control over which animals live and die. You know, tell that to the cows and the pigs in slaughterhouses, but, you know. (laughs) What also came up in this kind of dispute was the idea of naturalisation, This idea that, you know, the parakeets and the squirrels are here to stay and that they're part of our ecology now. This is a good point because surely at some point all creatures were invasive. When does a species get its native badge? But for many of the pro-cull advocates, these questions just simply do not matter. Just like those working with the assisted evolution concept we discussed in Australia... These pro-colours stress that humans do need to intervene in ecology, plain and simple. For them, there is a distinct need to preserve native wildlife species over imported non-native ones. And I find this very interesting because it's a bit unclear to me when we started actually giving a shit about native species, especially red squirrels. After all, in the early 19th century... 20,000 red squirrels were sold to London meat markets every single year. And in the early 20th century, the Highland Squirrel Club, which is basically the arch nemesis of Red Squirrel United, was formed to protect timber plantations from the damage caused by these cute red buggers who just damaged tree bark. And these guys proceeded to slaughter 85,000 reds over the next three decades. Where was the concern here? Perhaps the poor grey squirrel is being scapegoated 
basically because we're not able to recognize the damage we've done to our local or native ecology. And I think this speaks to the uncomfortable fact that we only really begin to care about our native flora and fauna when it's under existential threat from ourselves, usually, or other so-called alien species. And you know what? I don't like this term alien species. It gives the impression that the grey squirrels are kind of interdimensional species that somehow teleported to the UK and began to colonise it. As I said before, it's us who are responsible for their alienness. We fucking brought them here after all. Anyway, with all this rhetoric of native versus non-native species, you'd imagine that we'd start to be a bit more careful about the prospect of importing so-called alien species to the UK. Well, of course, sweet apes, you'd be totally wrong. Enter that stalwart of British culture. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. Last year, crayfish were used in the Bush Tucker Trials segment of an episode. Now, I've never watched the show, but I presume the crayfish were poured onto the contestant's head or rammed up someone's orifice. I'm not too sure. I've never really watched it. Regardless, in a news article this week, the makers of the show have come under intense scrutiny as a species of crayfish they used was not native. They weren't even utilising homegrown talent. Terrible. Despite having no license to use this species, they appear to have hired narrow-clawed crayfish, or Turkish crayfish as they're also known. And these are listed as a non-native invasive species under the Wildlife and Countryside Act of 1981. And basically, if you have one, even in captivity, it's totally outlawed. These Ottoman crustaceans are one of six non-native crayfish that are now, because of us, wild in the UK. Their botched release as part of the show is actually really concerning because it happened in Wales, an area where this particular type of crayfish actually hasn't got a foothold. And when they do get loose, intentionally or unintentionally, they tend to outcompete the native white-clawed crayfish, which is currently listed on the IUCN red list, meaning that it's very vulnerable. Perhaps like the formation of the Red Squirrel Mafia, we'll see anti-Turkish crayfish brigades popping up across the country to resolve this issue. Or perhaps people will get teary-eyed at the idea of hunting them and write a complaint in the Guardian's comment section, whilst of course quaffing down a prawn sandwich from M&S in the process. What's interesting to me is I don't think people will give a shit about the crayfish. Because frankly, they're just not cute. There, I said it. I mean, just compare these little clawed boys to those beautiful exotic green parakeets or those bushy-tailed little grey squirrels. It's just not the same. We haven't been conditioned to give a shit about ugly animals. And in reality, it's not as if the ring-necked parakeets of Sefton Park or the Turkish crayfish of Wales have had anywhere near the impact on local biodiversity as other invasive species. Enter the granddaddy the cane toad. Originally a native of Central and South America, the poisonous cane toad was imported to many countries in the 20th century. The US, the Philippines, Japan, most Caribbean countries and Australia. And it was used as a kind of tool to wipe out local pests and beetle infestations. But of course, it's done much more than that. It's basically taken over some parts of these countries, Australia especially. In 1935, 102 cane toads were introduced to combat the greyback cane beetle in Oz. 
by 2010, that number had ballooned to 1.5 billion juicy toads. And these things are eating machines. They eat absolutely everything. Insects, other frogs, small reptiles, mammals, even birds. They're a bit like cockroaches as well, in the sense that they seem to defy death. They've been spotted nonchalantly hopping out of bushfires, totally unharmed, and swaggering away after being run over on the road. And due to their proliferation and this refusal to die, they are probably the most hated animal in Australia. This is a country that is basically defined by animals that can kill you. And still, this toad is numero uno. So tangible is this hatred for the amphibian that in 2009, Queensland authorities galvanised local people together for a massive toad cull. And in typical Aussie fashion, they turned it into a kind of festival, and they gave it a really disarming name, the Toad Day Out. Toad Day Out basically centred on local people capturing toads and then freezing them or gassing them to death. Pretty gnarly stuff, really, isn't it? But to take the edge off, the Toad Day Out organisers offered prizes to people. They offered prizes for those who could bring them the biggest toad or the highest total weight of toads collected. But what prize would you get? Only a stuffed toad itself. <laughs> it's like, if you hate this toad so much, why the fuck would you want a taxidermy one of it in your gaff? Anyway, Australia, it's all upside down there. Now, aside from their gargantuan size and the fact they are absolutely hated and persecuted by Aussies, there's something else that's very interesting about the cane toad, and all of this episode has been leading up to it. One of the issues that local people who encounter the toad in all these different countries have experienced is the fact that when their dogs get hold of them, two things happen. If the dog goes in gung-ho and tries to rip the toad apart, chewing on its flesh, often it will die due to the poisonous nature of the toad that is now ingested within the body. But if the dog takes a more nuanced approach and gives the toad a little lick before it bites into it, then it will proceed to trip its nut off because the poisonous secretions of the cane toad are highly psychedelic. Dog owners in Australia, for example, report that when their hounds have a little lick on the toad, they can do little else than either lie or sit and stare up into the sky as if they were astral travelling. And of course, we always wonder what dogs think about or see when they dream. But what the hell do they think about when they're on a trip? Perhaps they envisage chasing an intergalactic grey squirrel through a kaleidoscopic backdrop. There's obviously no way of knowing, but God, I bet it's fun. Anyway, you may think it's absolutely disgusting that these hounds are licking these toads, but hold your horses, because we do it too. I mean, not you and me on an everyday basis, but certain people seek out psychotropic experiences that can only be attained if you squeeze a frog and utilise its secretions. Amongst the indigenous peoples of the Amazon... The poison of the cambo, a local species of frog, has been used as a folk medicine for myriad reasons for generations. They use it to expel bad or malevolent spirits, induce abortions, resolve laziness, encourage fertility, increase strength, and bring good luck for hunts in the forest. In other words, it's basically the same as taking a multivitamin from Asda. 
Now, in typical fashion, it's now not only the indigenous people that are utilizing Cambo. It's become quite a popular practice for non-indigenous people who utilize the drug within cleansing or detox ceremonies. So basically, in either setting, the shaman or the healer will go out and find the frog. And to extract the psychedelic juices, they'll have to induce a pretty stressful state upon the poor beast. Usually the healer will stretch out the frog's limbs to activate its poisonous defense mechanisms. Because remember, this is a poison people are ingesting. And this is then collected and dried for later use. But how do you actually administer the payload? Well, first and foremost, a break must be made in the skin, either through a cut or a burn. Once this wound has been opened, then the dried cambo juice will be applied. And that's how it gets into the bloodstream. But what is it actually like to have the juices of a frog flowing in your blood? Well, I would know a few people who've done cambo, actually. And it sounds absolutely brutal. It usually involves diarrhea, vomiting, and most disturbing of all for some reason, excessive facial swelling. Although I guess if your face is that swollen, at least you can't see the mess you're producing from multiple ends. So I guess it swings and roundabouts a little bit. Anyway, any of you want to sign up? I've heard you can do it in Stoke-on-Trent these days, so give me a shout, I might just know a guy. But Cambo isn't the only ritual that involves the secretions of poisonous amphibians. There are many people who hunt the Sonoran Desert Toad, but not for its juicy back legs, but for its glands, which contain the elusive 5-MeO-DMT and bufotenin compounds that, when ingested, give you 15 seconds of warning before you're transported into the bloody ether. There's a good reason why dimethyltryptamine, or DMT, is coined the spirit molecule, as the toad liquor commonly experiences strong hallucinations that can teeter on the edge of the holy and the celestial. Now, I've always wondered why is it that these frogs, or these toads, actually have these active compounds that make you encounter God within them? It's unclear to me why evolution would have selected for this emergent property. Do these secretions increase the fitness of these amphibians? You know, do they allow them to adapt more effectively into their niche? We have to obviously remember that these secretions are poisonous, so they may operate as a predator deterrent. But why does this predator deterrent allow us a gateway to interact with the self or God in a way that we just can't even imagine in everyday life? Is it there for a reason? Or is the fact that their secretion is psychoactive just a random byproduct of evolution? Personally, it doesn't matter either way for me. It's just a wild miracle that these psychoactive properties exist at all. I'd be one of those weirdos who think that psychedelic drugs like DMT have been quite essential to the evolution of human culture and consciousness, especially in the realm of the religious. As controversial as it is to say, I think there's a good chance that most modern religions, especially the Abrahamic ones, are manifestations of historic psychedelic experiences upon which dogma and doctrine have been scaffolded upon and around. After all, the burning bush that Moses encountered God within 
may well have been an acacia tree, which is chock-a-block with DMT. In other words, my man was really burning some biblical bush that day. At the very least, psychedelia and psychedelic experiences seem to be central not only to the human species, but also others. After all, those dogs licking cane toads in Australia are by no means the only animals that engage with psychedelic experiences and substances. I mean, let's break it down for a second. Cats get baked off catnip, dolphins squeeze pufferfish to get a hit of a neurotoxin that stimulates euphoria, bighorned sheep gum down hallucinogenic lichen off of boulders, moose and caribou take heroic doses of psychedelic fungi, wallabies dabble with opium, jaguars consume roots that contain monoamine oxidase inhibitor chemicals, the same chemicals that we actually use for the treatment of depression. And alongside this, countless species are fond of an alcoholic tipple or two. Take pentailed shrews, for example. They actually store fermented nectar in their fur for a nightcap or a hair of the dog scenario. Or fruit flies who visit fly pubs to get pissed. In reality, humans are not exceptional at all in their desire to get off their tits. Perhaps a wish to escape our brains, which are themselves running a hallucination program that we just call reality, is inbuilt within all animals to lesser or greater extents. Does this mean that a sense of the spiritual is also imbued within all beings? And what does this mean about how we should treat our animal family? Surely, if we extended the capacity for spirit to the biosphere, we could ethically no longer exploit it in the manner that we do. Surely, we couldn't go back to treating nature as a selection of automatons, as predetermined, unthinking machinery. And hey, at least maybe we should think before we get rid of all those cane toads in Australia. Maybe we should follow the example of the tripping dog. Instead of freezing this invasive species which is causing so much harm to the native flora and fauna, maybe we should be licking them instead and experience a sense of oneness not only with our own species but companions within the other realms of being. Perhaps it would allow us... I'm just chatting shit now. I'm just chatting shit. Please never follow any of my advice. But do lick a toad. Definitely lick a toad. And with that advice that I think we can all identify with, let's call this to an end. Thanks a million for joining me as usual. I love you all. Again, I didn't say it in the previous episode, but I only noticed a couple of days ago that you guys have given me some feedback on iTunes. And honestly, it's made me feel really, really good about this stuff that I'm doing. Because it does take a fair bit of time, hence why it's a little bit delayed. Currently, my road is being chewed up and I'm being attacked by seagulls. So I am a little bit behind schedule. But seriously, thank you guys so much for offering that support. It doesn't have to just be in the form of a review, but a lot of you are sending me messages and advice, and it's just amazing. Feels like we've got a little puzzle monkey familia going, and long may that continue. If you have a friend or an uncle or an auntie who you think would have really enjoyed this episode, God knows why, then, you know, send it to them. See what they think about it. Talk to them about whether you should go into the forest and take Cambo or lick a frog just in downtown Australia. They might want to do it too. Or they might think you're absolutely insane. And if that's the case, don't point them in my direction. All right, guys, look after yourselves. Have a beautiful week. Enjoy the sun if it's with you. Goodbye from me and ta from the seagulls. 
Ta-da, you maggot. Thank you.